Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Hello, I am Joe Laurent, and welcome to Hold the Line, the podcast for force free gun dog training. Hold the Line is committed to helping you train your dog to an advanced level using motivational methods and without the use of fear or pain. Thank you for tuning in and please make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Hold the Line. Hi everyone, I'm back. I know that loads of you have been um, eagerly awaiting the return of the podcast and I can confirm that I'm alive. I feel as if I've been deep in a cave in some foreign country for a very long time and I've emerged blinking into the light. I mean, the last time I looked at my diary, it seemed to be sometime in August and suddenly it's November. So I don't really know where the time has gone and I feel like I've been away somewhere in some strange world where time isn't doesn't quite work in the same way but anyway I'm back I'm here and we've survived the puppies we are absolutely exhausted and the word exhausted doesn't quite capture the level of sheer (laughs) uh, knackeredness if that's a word Um, so I know that people in common speech say to each other oh I'm really knackered oh I'm really tired Um, and they kind of just mean oh I need to go home and have a lie down and this is like a whole different level of, of being knackered and exhausted. It's like a whole new world of exhaustion. Anyway, things are getting better now, getting back to normal. We've just got our keeper pup left, called which we've who we've called Fire, F-Y-R, and their mum, her mum, Moy. So um, I'm going to be talking about the whole experience of raising the puppies, I think, in various podcasts to come, because there have been lots of things, there always are lots of interesting things to come out of this. And I've been mulling over several sort of hot potato dog topics recently, like what what is happening to dogs today um, in in our society? And are we just getting dogs to lie around on sofas? And is that legitimate? And are we getting dogs knowing full well that they're going to need to go out to daycare or dog walker every day? And is that a good idea? And so on and so forth with those thoughts. Um, But anyway, I'm going to come back to that probably in later episodes. Um, for today, though, I just wanted to give you all some exciting news. So are you ready? Exciting news, drum roll. Some of you may already know this because if you've been following my Facebook page, you'll have already heard about this, but the book has been published. So yes, my book, which is called Force Free Gun Dog Training, The Fundamentals for Success, is now available on Amazon. So you can find it on amazon.co.uk and on amazon.com. And if you're in Scandinavia, you want to order it from Amazon.com. For some reason, it doesn't work if you order it from CoUK. So order it from .com if you're in Scandinavia. If you're in Australia, I am trying to figure out why the Australian store are not listing it yet. 
I am in conversation with Amazon about that, so hopefully we'll resolve that soon. But it's there. You can buy it. Yay, go get it. I'd also say Positive Animal Solutions in the UK are going to be stocking it on their website. And they just took it to Clicker Expo where it's sold out. So that is super fantastically brilliant. Um, So if you have a copy of the book, it would be absolutely fantastic if you could leave a review on Amazon. So I don't have like a huge marketing team behind me and, you know, promo stuff going on. It's just me and Basically, the Amazon reviews are really important. So if you have a copy of the book and you can leave it anonymously as well, by the way, you don't have to leave a name on on your Amazon review. Um, if you can go to Amazon and just leave a review, that would be super fantastic. And I will love you forever. Um, now, I do have to say also that I have a copy hanging around here on my desk, which is a proof. And it's almost identical to the copies which are sold. It just says across the front, not for resale. So I'm trying to think of a way to give this away. Um, And what I thought is I could have a little competition. So if you send me a training question in the next, I don't know, let's say the next month, um, I will enter you in a draw and you will get a free copy of my book. Um, So send me your training questions. You want to send them to joe, that's J-O, at dogworks, that's D-O-G-W-O-R-K-S, dot org o-r-g dot uk and i will enter you in a draw for this free copy of the book that i have here so that's the book um i'm really really excited it's selling really really well which is fantastic i didn't really i don't know didn't think it would sell this well from the beginning i thought it would be like a slow build-up but it's doing really well um so do get your copy from amazon um all right let's move on hold the line so i've had an email from emma who has some training questions for me. And Emma, I am going to enter you in a draw that I just spoke about, by the way, because it's not fair if you're not included. So I'm going to put you in the draw for a copy of the book. Um, Anyway, let me read your email so that we can answer it. So you say, I'm a positive gun dog trainer in Cambridgeshire and work a Cocker Spaniel. I'm really enjoying your podcast and YouTube videos. Thank you for your time making podcasts which are inspiring my own training sessions and my lessons. I'm really glad to hear that, Emma. Um, she said, I have two questions for the podcast. So here's the first question. Earlier this year, an article titled Doesn't Intermittent Reinforcement Create a Stronger Behaviour by Eileen and Dogs made me rethink the gambling analogy. Since, I've been inspired to take a vending machine approach to compete with real-world reinforcers in the countryside. For example, my rewards for check-ins are frequent and I take an FR1 for recalls. But your discussion with Nick Benger over on his podcast about harnesses and uniform resonated with me because I know a pocket full of rewards or a bum bag and a clicker doesn't fit in with the expected norm of a shooting field either. I'd rather not stand out because of our kit while we're still in the training process. So what would your advice be to a positive gun dog handler heading out into the field? Would you, re- would you reduce the frequency of reinforcement? Is there a strategy I could use to transfer the value onto the actual work to reduce the amount of food she receives when working? For example, the practical application of the premec principle in our pre-season training sessions. So that was the first question. I'm going to just pause there and answer that question first, and then I'm going to go on to your second question in a minute. So to answer your first question, um, I'm just going to summarize what I think you're saying because I think you haven't maybe said it explicitly and people listening might not may not understand what exactly it is. So I hear you saying that you kind of you've read this article by Eileen and Dogs, which I agree with, um, which is I'll just summarize the article because not everyone's going to be familiar with that. Maybe I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. So basically, 
The argument here is that um, conventionally, and maybe a few years ago, it was said by trainers that um, clicker trainers that we should all be using variable reinforcement when we have trained a behavior and that we should only use um, we should only reinforce every single correct repetition when we're in the training process and that once the dog knows the behavior we should then move on to intermittent reinforcement and that was the gambling analogy that when you're gambling you put money in the slot machine and most of the time you don't get money back you don't win Um, but sometimes you do And the fact that sometimes you do gets you addicted to the process of gambling and means that you try even harder. So this was then applied to dog training. And it was thought that if you didn't reinforce every correct response the dog made, that the dog would try even harder and you would have the same response from your dog. So that actually not reinforcing every correct response would result in a better uh, behavior from your dog. Now, this isn't true. Let's just say that. Um, And that is what Eileen and Dogs, this article is. Um, And the article is called Doesn't Intermittent Reinforcement Create a Stronger Behavior? And again, I will find it and put it in the show notes. And I very much agree with the premise of it. Um, And there's a section in my book as well about this too. So there's a whole section on variable reinforcement and why we should not use variable reinforcement. So it's very important to reinforce every single correct response. And let's think about why that is. Because particularly in gun dog work, we ourselves and our treats and our toys are not the only source of reinforcement. There are also, obviously, um, there's game out there. There's birds, there's rabbits, there's scent. There is all the stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes that is in the environment, whether it's horse poo, sheep poo, cow poo, other dogs, people. So the environment is constantly reinforcing the dog. So we can be there going, huh, I'm going to reduce my treats and I'm only going to give the dog a correct a treat every fifth time the dog comes back or every third time the dog comes back or randomly. Um, you know, I'm not going to reinforce every single time. Meanwhile, the environment is reinforcing every single time. Every single time the dog smells where another dog has weed, that reinforces the dog. Every single time a dog eats cow poo, that reinforces the dog. So the environment is reinforcing the dog on an FR1 you know, uh, reinforcement um, schedule. So the dog is getting that. Re- it's being reinforced every single time. Um, and so we can't compete with that and we can't control that. So we need to be reinforcing every single time as well if we want to be able to control our dog in the environment. Otherwise, the dog's getting less and less reinforcement from us and more and more reinforcement from the environment and we can just all see what's going to happen. And that is what happens. You get less control um, over the dog and less responsiveness. So the other thing I'd say is that the research, the original research into variable reinforcement schedules was carried out in sort of laboratory conditions so it was in skinner boxes it was in white boxes where there was nothing else in the box apart from the pigeon or the rat and the thing that was supposed to peck or um you know the um whatever whatever it was that they were doing there was nothing there was no there were no trees in the skinner box there were no there was no urine from another rat there was no here's a little pot of free grain which you can get when you want to as well as working for the grain which comes when you touch something or peck something so there was nothing else there apart from the opportunity to earn a reinforcer by doing that behavior there was it was a blank white space as it were and the real world as we all know is not like that so there are all of these other reinforcers out there um endless variables endless variables and as well as the sort of reinforcement issue which i just covered in terms of the environment is going to be reinforcing every single correct response there's also the fact that um well 
in terms of proofing, it makes proofing difficult too. So it used to be said that you should only move to a variable reinforcement schedule once you've fully trained a behavior and you've proofed it against everything. Well, Gundog work, and I explore this idea as well in my book, is it never it's never ending basically because a rabbit can flush from left to right across the dog's field of vision or they can flush from right to left or they can flush from the dog away from the dog or they can flush towards the dog less or commonly but they can um they the rabbit can move slowly the rabbit can move quickly the rabbit can be a baby bunny or it could be a hare so there's like an endless endless um um list of variables and that's just rabbits so let's not get started on you know different birds and the way the birds can flush and and the cover and the way that cover can impact on things. So because there are endless variables in the environment, we are always training and we are always proofing. And that's really what gundog training is all about. And so we can never say, okay, we've done it. We've trained our behavior. We've proofed it against everything that ever might possibly happen in the world because we haven't, we never have. Um, and so therefore even that argument falls down. So anyway, I've now, I'm now rambling instead of answering Emma's question. So I'll get back to her question. So, um, Emma, I think, is saying that she has decided to reinforce every correct response, or at least many, much more frequently, which is a good decision to make. But she is struggling with how to take that into the shooting field and how to continue to do that in a more, you know, when she's actually working her dog and in that environment. So let's talk about that a little bit. So one thing I suggest is getting away from the huge bum bag treat pouch thing around your waist, because obviously that is very that's just a huge visual statement in many ways. Um, and I do believe we should be trying to be discreet. Um, well, we won't go into why. I think I've covered that a bit in previous podcasts. But one, my solution, which works really well, is to get Adder speakers. So if you, you can search for these on Amazon, they're pretty cheap. Um, so it's spelled A-double-D-I-S, A-double-D-I-S, so Adder speaker. And it's just like a little screw top flask. So it's just like a little flask, which you screw the lid on and off. And what I suggest is that you these these fit really well in barber coat pockets and they probably fit well in other coat pockets as well. I just seem to always get barber jackets because I love the game pouch at the back, which I can put all kinds of stuff in. So I can't talk about other brands of coat, but they do fit really, really well in the deep coat pockets. Um, so you can have one of these deep in your coat pocket on the left side for your heel work and for you know all your other behaviors. And then you can have another in, in the coat pocket on your right side which I use as my extra special, super deeper, amazingly tasty recall treats in that side. So um, I, you can't really see these from out. If you just look at a person with these two um, beakers in their pockets, you can't really see them. You might see a bit of slight bulge in their coat pockets, but that's all you're going to see. So this is very subtle and like a big bum bag or something. And the clicker, again, you don't really need to use the clicker when you're working in the field. You should be able to use a verbal marker like yes or ace or something like that and you should be able to say that quietly to the dog and but you know if you do want to use a clicker i don't think people are really going to even hear it in the hullabaloo of um, a shoot for example especially if you're using something like an eye click um, and it would only be useful if the dog were working close to you if you if it was heel work for example that you were clicking if the dog's at a distance i don't think they're going to hear any click um, while sh- shots are being fired and beaters are making noises and all the rest of it um, but yeah an eye click for heel work, I don't think anyone's going to think that that's weird. You can hold that quite discreetly in your hand. I've done all this, by the way, on sheets, and no one said anything whatsoever. So um, that's what I would suggest. Um, I don't think you'll really stand out if you're doing that. And I do recommend that you are very, very liberal with the treats when you're ent- entering the shooting field. So 
Um, it's often said that you should get a lot of experience on shoots before you enter any sort of competition or trials. And I highly, highly recommend that. There are all kinds of reasons for that to do with not wasting people's time in trials, not taking the place of a dog, which might be successful if you if your dog's very, very inexperienced. Um, but we won't go into all those reasons. Besides that, the the main reason in terms of training is you want the dog to learn that your reinforcers are still available in this environment. So let's look at competition obedience for a minute. So in competition obedience, they have this thing called a training ring. So in the training ring, you can go in the training ring and it, to the dog looks the same as the competition ring. So it has white ring gates around it and you know it looks exactly the same. And you can go in there and you can use your treats and you can use your toys and you can teach the dog that these things are available in the training ring. So that when you go into the competition ring, which to the dog looks exactly the same, there's not a big difference. So the dog continues to believe that treats and toys are going to be available any minute and you get the same response from your dog. Now, if training rings didn't exist and you just had to go straight into the competition ring, the dog would often believe, well, you know, you'd see the performance deteriorate and actually you do see this in, in obedience um, often. So you see the dogs realize that treats and toys are not going to happen in this environment. And then you see their focus on the handler uh, deteriorate often um, and a lot of obedience training is focused on trying to work out why this is happening trying to prevent it from happening trying to teach the dog that this environment is the same as the environment where they were getting treats and toys um, and trying to blur the blur the sort of training environment into the competition environment so that the dog doesn't conclude that they're not going to get reinforced in the in the competition environment now Let's apply this to gun dog work. It's exactly the same. You don't want to be like when you're out just yourself training your dog or with a couple of your mates, your dog gets liberal amounts of treats. But when you're out on a shoot and doing the real thing and the shots being fired and there are strange people and strange dogs around in a new place that suddenly there are no treats or there are very infrequent treats because your dog is pretty quickly going to become a dog which behaves really, really well in training because they know that there are very frequent reinforcements going to happen and not that well in competition or you're going to, um, I'm sorry, in in the field because you're going to slowly teach the dog that it's less, it pays less to uh, give you attention when it's a real working environment. So the value of a shooting environment for us is that it's an opportunity to generalize, to teach the dog that reinforcement is still available when there are shots being fired and there are other dogs around and there are strange people around and we're in a new place. You're still going to get loads of treats. So then when you finally then go on to enter a trial or a competition, your dog is still going to be believing that just because there are shots being fired, there are strange people, there are strange dogs in a strange place. doesn't mean that reinforcement is going to stop because they've been used to, to getting liberal reinforcers when they've been working previously. So the dog doesn't know whether they're un, you know, under assessment or in competition or not. And so we need to take full advantage of shoots, non-competitive working environments to be able to teach our dogs that treats and reinforcers are still going to be available in this type of place. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense to everyone. I explained it well. Um, So, yes. So anyway, that would be my advice. Um, So to answer your question, um, would you reduce the frequency of reinforcement? No, absolutely not. Anytime you can reinforce your dog, reinforce your dog. Um, Don't make a big, you know, song and dance about it. And hey, look, everyone, I'm giving my dog treats. Just, you know, have the treats, not in a bum bag, um, but within your coat pockets, as I just described, and give your dog a treat whenever you want to reinforce them. And frankly, to be honest, people are not looking at whether you're giving your dog treats on shoots. They are concentrating on their own dogs and what their own dogs are doing. They're looking for where game is coming down and they're focused on their own jobs. And if they do notice it, they're not going to say anything because it's not interfering with what they're doing. So, you know, give your dog treats liberally and 
yeah, make sure you do. That's really important. Um, so next question that you have here, is there a strategy I could use to transfer the value onto the actual work to reduce the amount of food she receives when working? For example, the practical application of the pre-MAC principle in our pre-season training sessions. So yes, over time, as a dog gains experience, they will need fewer treats and they will value the work and they will learn that the access to the work itself, which is valuable, comes through working with you and through the relationship with you and through you as the portal and the gateway to all that. But this is not a process which can be rushed. It's something the dog has to learn in their own time and as they gain experience and as they become more reliable. So it is something that happens, but it's not something that you consciously have to push or strive for or work on. If you just keep taking your dog into Um, shooting environments and you keep liberally reinforcing all the correct behaviors that you like what you'll notice is that your dog just needs less reinforcement for the same tasks you'll just over time start to realize that you're giving less treats and the dog is still being really responsive Um, and that's just because they're just settling into their task and this is all just becoming less exciting and less new and less novel and just it's becoming part of their everyday work which is what you want them to to experience it as Um, and they will also start to learn that the access to you know, retrieve or their their permission to flush and all that's coming from you rather than from um you know from from the environment. So they will they will access environmental rewards through you. But like I said, that's not something that you can rush. That's just something the dog has to slowly come through maturity and through experience and through time. So it's not something you have to focus on in training at all. Just keep going um with your liberal reinforcing of things um and you will get that. All right, so let's move on to your second question then. So your second question is, the only time I have trouble recalling my dog is when she has found something yucky she wants to eat. In my training plan to conquer this, I've taken Pippa Matteson's approach from Total Recall of recalling away from desirable food which is out of reach, combined with my own stages of teaching a leave-it cue to mean a head turn away from a desirable food. The strategy is working well during controlled training sessions indoors and on our walks, but when she has access to things in an uncontrolled outdoor environment and can grab a mouthful, I've lost her. So this is quite a common um, scenario and it tends to arise because people give dogs too much freedom too soon. So Okay folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me 
and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. You kind of want to make sure it's about there's again there's a whole chapter in my book on this. Not to plug the book too much, but there is a whole chapter on prevention and why prevention is so important. And in this context, that would mean the long line. And it would mean keeping the long line on all the time until you know 100% that the dog is reliable in all these different um, settings and situations. So if you are seeing any behavior which you feel that you're not in control of that's happening when you're out and about, then that's not time for the long line to come off yet, basically. So that long line needs to be on the dog all the time. And that way, if you recalled the dog and they didn't come, or if you said leave it and the dog didn't come, you could gently remove the dog from whatever it was they were doing. And that leaves the only available reinforcer to be yours in that moment. And they will then make that choice to come and get the tasty treat from you. So that's one thing to say. Um, And you need to be able to do that repeatedly uh, until they learn that you know, this it's not available. The tasty thing out there that they want is not available anymore after the recall um, and they have to come back to you instead. And once they've had that happen a few times, they'll just start to do it by themselves automatically. So prevention is really, really important. Um, and it's always easier to do this from the beginning before you see it happening. So people often wait till they have a problem so they can see something like this happening and then they put on the long line now that's going to be a lot harder because the dog's got a reinforcement history for the the unwanted thing for eating the tasty stuff now and it's it's going to be a lot more work to undo that previous learning the dog has had it would have been a lot lot simpler just to keep the long line on from the beginning and prevent this from ever happening and then it probably would never have happened and it would only taken a few instances of prevention before you could be satisfied that you covered this one um so People tend to take long lines off too soon, is kind of what to say there. Um, And don't implement prevention for long enough or reliably enough or consistently enough. Um, All right, so the other thing to say about this is to talk about um, this idea of recalling from food. So one thing I like to do with this is you can buy these, um, I don't know how to describe them. They are like plastic, well, they're rubber balls, which are like a cage. So it's a ball and it is made of rubber, but instead of being like a solid ball, it's a cage ball. And so it's very empty inside and you can easily push things inside it. Now, I like these balls because what I do is I push a treat inside, which something like a big chunk, a big sort of um, piece of fish skin, for example, like those that hard um, cooked fish skins that you can buy for dogs or something similarly sized, like a big chunky tasty treat thing and the dog can't eat that very quickly because it's inside the ball so it gives you an opportunity to practice leave and drop and those kind of behaviors away from a food item without the dog just being able to eat it quickly because the problem with practicing this around food is that the dog just eats it really quickly Um, and you can have someone dancing around the dog and tempting the dog with the food and that's a valuable thing to do but it's a step on from that to get rid of that other person who can then remove the food and to have the food inside this kind of caged ball which the dog has to decide to drop or leave to come away from so that's one little step which i'd recommend that people do when they're trying to teach this behavior the other thing i'd say is that you want to practice this in the environment that you want it to work in so it's all very well practicing it inside in your house and controlled training sessions indoors as you said um or on walks where you've kind of you know you've set it up and the dog can see that you've set it up but it's a lot harder to, um, it's more important to make sure you're also practicing it in places where you want it to work and where it is an unexpected one-off 
occurrence. So this may involve some kind of um, setting things up in advance. So you may need to leave your dog in the car and go and plant something which you think is going to appeal to them. And then you want to make sure you've got your long line on to practice this with, your leave or your recall. Um, and you you might want to put the food inside one of those caged balls that I was talking about. But you basically want to get practicing this out in the environment where you want it to work because dogs are very context specific. And whilst things can be working really, really well in the house, they're not going to recognize this necessarily in a new environment outdoors. So you need to kind of generalize it to that new environment And you also need to make it, there's a big difference between a training session where you're there with your clicker and your treats and your dog knows it is, in capital letters, a training session. And when you're out and about with your dog and a a one-off thing happens unexpectedly, that is a different situation. And we need to kind of set up those situations so that we can practice it. So um, another analogy in terms of gun dog training would be it's the difference between... um, having putting a bird in a bird launcher to practice pointing and steadiness to flush and and the difference between um you know doing that over and over repeatedly so you do one and you walk the dog away and you do it again you walk the dog away so doing that over and over repeatedly and having the dog running around hunting a field and there's one bird and one bird launcher there then that's that's a one-off sudden different occurrence in a novel environment and so you need to move away from concentrated um sessions on one thing Um, And you need to make it be this one-off thing that happens still in a controlled way that you are absolutely in control of and can prevent the unwanted thing from happening. But it's just that the dog doesn't expect it. So the unexpected needs to be practiced, as it were. Um, Next thing I'd say is you need to make sure that your reinforcer is really reinforcing. So people with recalls often don't use tasty enough stuff. And they think that, for example, cheese or, um, I don't know, some sort of uh, roast meat is tasty enough. And... I always tell people to use something squishy and smelly and disgusting. So something like sardines, pate, gourmet wet dog food, uh, smoked mackerel, um, anything fishy is usually successful and anything like pate or squidgy stuff like that is is usually good as well. Um, And the reason for that, I think, is that dogs taste it more. So dogs eat their treats so quickly, they're just down their throats before they've even experienced what they are. Whereas if you give them something soft and squishy and wet, it kind of explodes around their mouth and it makes a huge impression on them and they really kind of um, value it a lot more. So uh, make sure that your recall is being rewarded by something of that caliber particularly if if you want it to work against the stuff in the environment. Um, You need to make sure that you have drilled it repeatedly as well. So not just doing it once or twice, but, you know, making sure that you can do it over and over. So really focusing on that thing. Um, So someone in one of my classes the other day said that they were struggling with recalling their dog away when a, when a bird, the dog would see a bird and the dog would just head off straight towards that bird. Um, And they didn't manage to grab the long line time the dog would be the dog would be gone after the bird so the situation the thing to identify there is that our problem stimulus is the bird and so let's isolate that and let's work that let's find somewhere where there are birds which are not going to fly away instantly but they're maybe going to just walk around and i don't know do whatever birds do um, and you're going to stand at a distance with your dog on the long line holding the long line if necessary to drill that recall over and over again until you have it working um, similarly with one of my dogs um, we had a problem with rabbits and wanting to chase rabbits and the recall around rabbits so again we went to places where rabbits would congregate at dawn and dusk and we would just hang out there at a distance watch the rabbits and i practice the recall over and over again in the presence of the rabbits so it's no good at sort of identifying that your dog has a problem and then just not 
working that problem. You have to work the problem. And you have to have done all the preliminary work first before you get... It's no point if you haven't drilled your recall enough, if you haven't done recalls away from food distractions, if you haven't done recalls away from the caged bull, for example, and so on and so forth. You can't just skip to drilling around rabbits. It's not going to work. But once you've done all that earlier stuff and you still identify that you have a problem with a particular thing, then you have to isolate that thing and go and work it. You can't just occasionally randomly run into it because it will be a problem for you in that situation if you haven't drilled it repeatedly so anyway i hope some of that is is useful in some way um i'm going to stop here for this week it's just a little kind of um getting back into the swing of things podcast this week um i hope that's been useful and as i said before if you send me your training questions then i will enter you in a draw for this copy of the book that I have here on my desk so um, you can email me your training questions at joe that's j-o at dogworks d-o-g-w-o-r-k-s dot org dot uk um, that's all for this week everyone and I will see you again next week